This is The Guardian. Today, how did Ecuador become the most dangerous country in Latin America? to report on a wave of violence that has Ecuadorians under siege. We pulled up at a street corner. There were dozens and dozens of people standing around a yellow police line. We're just moving through the police lines to see if we can get a bit closer and find out what's going on. But there's one, two, three, four policemen outside. Dozens and dozens of people on either side of the street. And then they're outside a barber's shop. Sounds like the barber has been killed and immediately saw through the crowd just this appalling scene of a woman with a broom and a couple of young girls and a man sweeping the interior of the barber shop and the floor was just awash with crimson blood and hair from a customer who had been shot dead by we think two assassins a few minutes earlier whilst he was having his hair cut and the barber had also I think been shot and we believe the barber may have been the target. The mother of the victim appeared and broke down and said, I just can't believe that this is happening. It's a lie. And the people kept sweeping the barber shop and then maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, they'd finished and the gutter was filled with hair and blood. The porch was clean. The barber's chair was put back inside. The police line came down. A policeman approached us and said, you guys need to leave because this is a dangerous neighbourhood. We got in our car and we sped away. It's one murder in a city gripped by violence. But it has become a horrific daily reality for Ecuadorians. God alone knows what it's like for the families involved who day after day after day are losing their loved ones to a completely senseless war to which there seems to be no end in places like Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, and now Ecuador. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, cocaine, gangs, murder. Ecuador's 10 days of terror. Tom Phillips, you're The Guardian's Latin America correspondent, and you have been in Ecuador reporting over the past week. There is a lot to unpack in the story, but I do just want to start with your first impressions. What was the atmosphere like when you arrived in Guayaquil? 
very unsettling and strange. And I got to the hotel, started talking to the receptionist, and she said, well, you know, we're not sure what's going on. Don't go out of the hotel. Do not even go out for a walk. People were really nervous. There were a few tourists on our plane who'd sort of been blindsided by the whole thing and were flying in to go off to the Galapagos, and they were looking pretty nervous. Almost no one in the streets. It had been a big, big city here of about three million people that had been turned in the hours after those attacks into a virtual ghost town. So it was really unsettling, and we didn't really know what to expect. To South America now and the unprecedented violence on the streets of Ecuador, with the president declaring the country is in a state of war with ruthless drug gangs. After a wave of gang violence swept through the country. This is all after a notorious gangster seemingly escaped from prison. Tom, the last couple of weeks in Ecuador have unleashed a level of violence and terror that has made headlines around the world. It all started with the escape of a gang leader. Can you tell me what happened? So we're still trying to piece together exactly what happened and why it happened. But one of the key sparks seems to have come when a very notorious gang leader vanished mysteriously from his cell. We still don't know where he is. Sin noticias sobre el paradero de alias Pito, el temido líder de la banda criminal Los Choneros en Ecuador. El presidente Daniel Novoa... So his nickname is Fito, and he is one of the top leaders of one of the three major gangs here, a group called Los Choneros, and a very feared figure and a very powerful and well-connected man. And one of the suspicions is that the new president had been planning to send him to a high-security prison, well, an even more high-security prison, because one of the big problems with organised crime in Ecuador and across Latin America, frankly, is that these groups control the prisons, they operate with absolute impunity and freedom from within the prisons and are able to talk to people, use mobile phones, communicate with the outside world and set up these sort of fortresses within the prison system. And you get a real sense of the brazenness of it because Fito was, while in prison, recording a narco ballad, sort of paying tribute to his criminal empire whilst behind bars. So the new president's plan, we think, was to move him to another one. And it's possible that the attacks last week were a reaction. It was an attempt to push back against those government's plans and force the government not to do that because that would have cut this drug boss off from his operations. The very next day, 13 masked men and boys, armed heavily with guns and dynamite, stormed a live news show at TC Television Studios. Scenes of utter terror were broadcast to homes across Ecuador. Tom, as you said, you're still connecting the dots between his escape and then the attack on the TV station. But it was so shocking to watch that footage and the journalists were obviously terrified. How did that all unfold? It sounded absolutely terrifying. The first person I went to see when I landed here was a television presenter and reporter called José Luis Calderón. And he had been in the newsroom next door to the studio when these guys burst in. And they fled into the toilet to hide. And he um, stood there with his phone hidden in his pocket, making calls to his brother-in-law, to 911, to try and get help. And eventually, the gunman burst in, marched them all into the studio. And Jose Luis is the fellow who appears in these images that went viral on the internet. 
with a shotgun pointed to the right-hand side of his neck, and they were apparently demanding that he record a video that could be broadcast to the outside world telling the police not to come in, and if they did, then all of the hostages would be killed. So, I mean, absolutely terrifying. I just, you know, as he was speaking, I was sort of imagining what on earth would happen if that happened in the Guardian's newsroom in London, how awful that would be. Really, really frightening. Eventually, the police, special forces moved in and somehow, goodness knows how, managed to defuse the situation, arrest 13 men and boys. Fortunately, nobody was killed. And whilst that was happening, there was absolute pandemonium on the streets outside. People were locking themselves indoors. There was fake news, there were rumours. You know, the streets just, just emptied out very, very quickly. And even when we arrived on Wednesday, there was almost not a soul to be seen on the streets, even during the day. The biggest question everyone has watching this, reading it, is why? What provoked this wave of attacks? So that's not yet clear. I mean, one of the theories is that the new president, Daniel Noboa, who took office in November, had signaled that he was going to pursue a very hardline crackdown on these groups, which had become increasingly powerful over the past few years. And that this was a form of what one academic I know calls criminal lobbying, where they basically push back with massive amounts of violence against government plans and try and influence policy through bloodshed. What we can say is that this clearly lays bare how Ecuador, which until five or six years ago was seen as frankly one of the most peaceful, calmest places in Latin America, has over the last five or six years been absolutely plunged into horrific bloodshed basically by the South American cocaine trade and the way in which that cocaine is moving not just to the US but to Europe and beyond. And Ecuador is an absolutely critical country in that sense because it has a very big port here in Guayaquil. Huge container shipments of bananas, of pineapples, of shrimp are being sent from that port to the rest of the world. And criminal groups not just from Ecuador and neighbouring Colombia, which is one of the world's top cocaine producers alongside Peru, but also Mexican cartels, specifically the Sinaloa cartel and Jalisco New Generation cartel, have all moved in. And so in the last few years, since 2017, you've seen a ninefold increase in murder here. And that has put Ecuador, which just a few years was, as I said, had a very low murder rate compared to the rest of the region. Now there are more murders here per year than in Mexico, Brazil and Colombia. That is just incredible. I mean, for Ecuador to have spiralled into this epidemic of violence so fast that drug gangs could have utterly destabilised the country. It was very clear from some of the things that the gangsters who invaded the television station, it was very clear from the messages they were putting out that this was a message to authorities. As one security expert said to me, this was an attempt to slap down the new president, to, to send a very, very strong message to him do not mess with us, that treating the gangs in that way was not acceptable and would not be tolerated. We are practically living in a state of war against terrorism. These are not organised crime groups, they are terrorists who are financed by drug trafficking, trafficking in people, organs and arms. So tell me about this president, Daniel Noboa. Tell me about his rise to power. Well, he was elected after an absolutely extraordinary presidential election, during which one of the other candidates, Fernando Villavicencio, was murdered while campaigning. He was walking into a car. when he was shot by a sniper. Because it's not known for political assassinations. I mean, that's not something we've ever really heard about with Ecuador. 
It was extraordinarily shocking. I remember that at the time I was in the Amazon in Brazil at a conference with a group of journalists and Brazilian diplomats. And we started getting reports of the shooting on our phones as we sat around having dinner. And just everybody was aghast. También darle gracias a todas esas personas que han sido parte de un proyecto político nuevo, de un proyecto político so, Noboa came to power after that. He was elected eventually in October, took power in November. He is Ecuador's youngest ever president. He's 36. So a very young man handling a very, very severe crisis. And he is US educated and the son of a very wealthy banana tycoon from the Guayaquil region. How do you think the assassination of his rival, how do you think that's shaped his presidency so far? During the campaign, Naboa didn't actually initially indicate that he was going to go for such a hardline crackdown on organised crime and the gangs. Once he'd taken power, there were hints that he would, and that he might take a leaf out of the book of Najib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, who has locked up tens of thousands of people in a massive anti-gang crackdown that's been going on for nearly two years now. So it's possible that as a result of those signals that the gangs decided they had to act because that was not acceptable to them and almost certainly not acceptable to their Mexican partners. Tom, as you said, Ecuador doesn't have this historic reputation for drug production or cartel violence like Colombia and Mexico. What changed? What was the turning point? There are a few factors behind this. One is the 2016 peace deal in Colombia between FARC rebels and the Colombian government. FARC had long controlled large chunks of northern Ecuador when it came to drug running, and those routes were put up for grabs with that peace deal. The pandemic was another factor. I remember during the pandemic, some of the most horrific reporting that we did on COVID's impact in Latin America was in the region around Guayaquil. There were weeks when there were bodies being dumped in the streets because the morgues were overloaded, funeral homes could not cope. So there was an absolutely horrific humanitarian and economic impact on this region. Many, many people lost their jobs, and that, people think, pushed many people into the hands of the gangs, particularly disenfranchised young men. And what does all this mean for Ecuadorians living under this new and terrifying violence? I mean, how much has life changed for them? I mean, just absolutely terrifying. Yesterday, I drove across the river from Guayaquil into the neighbouring city of Duran, which, by our calculations, is now probably one of the most dangerous, perhaps the third or fourth most dangerous city with the highest murder rate in the world because it is a staging point from drugs coming south from Colombia and then onto the port and then onto the rest of the world. I went to see a woman who didn't want to be named for obvious reasons, and she lived in a gang-controlled community. She told me she had four friends killed last year, and she took me on a little tour of the neighbourhood, and in about ten minutes driving around that neighbourhood, we had seen six or seven different murder scenes, all from last year. Oh, wow. Uh, more than 400 people were killed in Duran last year. So extremely shocking. And she, she said she wanted to leave, but she didn't have the financial resources to do so. Had no choice to stick it out. Unfortunately, it's, you know, that's daily life in Ecuador and it's daily life in many Latin American countries. People die, people stand around and watch. You never find out who did it. No one goes to jail. Rinse and repeat. And are Ecuadorians leaving? And if so, where are they going? Yeah, they're leaving in record numbers. And last year, I think about 100,000 Ecuadorians passed through the Darien Gap, which is this extraordinarily dangerous stretch of jungle between Colombia and Panama. And migrants from across the world are using it to head north to the US. So yes, they are leaving in record numbers. Even the mayor of Duran, who I interviewed, has been forced to leave his city. He took office last May 
And hours before he was supposed to take office, a group of assassins launched an ambush on his car, killed two of his security guards, killed a bystander. The mayor flees into a nearby house, cowers in the bathroom, thinks he's about to die. He later managed to be sworn in, but he is not able to occupy his office. So he told me he has never, never, ever, not in the last eight months, been able to sit down in the mayor's chair. And he spends his time moving from city to city, town to town, living in safe houses. So he's the mayor of a city that hasn't been able to be a mayor in the city that he's mayor of. No, absolutely bonkers. I'm, I just <laughs> just imagine sort of Sadiq Khan trying to run London while sneaking between Manchester, Birmingham and Leeds constantly and then making these clandestine trips into London and then fleeing immediately because he's too worried he might get killed. I mean, just, just unbelievable. The woman I met, I asked her about this and she just said, there's only one word for it and it's alone. Duran, her city is alone. Tom, you've been reporting in Ecuador since this wave of attacks and you've been reporting on the government's fight back against these gangs. What has that looked like? I suppose it's looked like history repeating itself. I've been covering Latin America for on and off for 20 years now and I've seen this kind of hardline crackdown in many countries across the region. I've seen it in Mexico. I've seen it very often in Rio de Janeiro where I live. I went out with a group of Air Force troops and Special Forces police, about 30 men, as they conducted a series of raids, which are part of what is called Plan Phoenix, the president's new security plan, which is this hardline crackdown on organized crime and the gangs. And we went out to watch them in action. We first arrived in a low-income community. And we watched the news battering rams and bolt cutters to smash their way into a succession of houses. They didn't find anything inside. They did find two men in a local square who they thought looked suspicious because they had tattoos. One was Colombian, one was Venezuelan. And they were laying down, face down on the curb. Their pants were pulled down around their ankles, had guns pointed at them and were being interrogated. And I was there with a colleague from Channel 4 News. And there came a point where the soldiers said, stop recording. And we knew what was coming and we moved away to another part of the street from where we could hear for about half an hour screams of agony as these guys were pummeled with sticks for information. Which gang do you belong to? What are you doing? It was awful standing there in the darkness listening to the dogs barking and listening to these two guys. So, you know, when I say history repeating, I mean, yeah, the, the, this, the, the military has now been unleashed and it's, you know, and there, there will be these abuses and, and actually they're not, they don't seem particularly bashful about it. I mean, you see on social media already similar scenes, people being hit with sticks, beaten. It's a message to the gangs. But they sound like quite desperate tactics. It doesn't sound like the authorities are necessarily in control. I'm thinking of those social media videos where the public humiliation of removing clothes from prisoners it's become very much part and parcel of how the authorities are choosing to expose, quite literally in this case, and humiliate potential gang members. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's not worked in other countries around the region. All it does is fuel hatred amongst those gangsters and, frankly, the poor communities, which they use as their bases towards the police and the military. It's very hard to see how it will work in the long term, simply because the, the, the profits involved in organised crime and cocaine trafficking are so hard. So it might be popular politically. There are several right-wing populists around Latin America who are pushing this at the moment, the Bukele solution, hardline crackdown, throw loads of people in jail, raid houses without a warrant, declare a state of emergency. But does it work in the long term? No. 
coming up. Will Ecuadorians support the government's brutal violence to counter the gangs? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Tom, are Ecuadorians broadly behind President Naboa? How popular is his hardline strategy? I think they are at the moment, yes. Just as in El Salvador, where the president's crackdown has had an almost miraculous impact, frankly, on a country which you know had had a, had a very, very high homicide rate not, not that long ago. Life was hell for many people. That drove migration to the US too. I think there has been a, a, a massive improvement in this situation, although at a great cost to El Salvador's democracy and to human rights. People are broadly behind Najib Bukele. He's likely to be re-elected next month or certain to be re-elected next month. And I think, yeah, Naboa's crackdown is popular. The woman I spoke to in Duran yesterday said, yeah, I am behind it. Something needs to happen. Something needs to be done. So hang on a second, because this hardline strategy is one you think won't work in the long term. But in some respects, you've said it is having success in El Salvador. How do you square those two ideas? I mean, maybe the way to put it is this. In El Salvador, even critics of President Bukele admit that his crackdown has worked. But they say, effectively, the country has moved from one kind of criminal dictatorship and is edging towards another kind of political dictatorship. Well, of course, ideally, a country would not be under a criminal dictatorship nor a political dictatorship. But given the choice between one or the other, I think many people, frankly, in many countries across Latin America, which have similar problems of relentless um, organized crime, fuel violence, may choose an authoritarian approach because they are sick to the back teeth of living in communities that are controlled by young men with big guns uh, on drugs, ruining the lives of many, many people. Well, Tom, what are the alternatives? If the iron fist approach doesn't work, what alternative proposals are offered? 
I think that's a very big and important question that progressive politicians in Latin America are facing. What is their alternative? What alternative are they offering? What are they saying about reforming the prison system? What are they saying about how policing should be done? In Rio, for example, there was a pacification scheme by which there were community policing projects. We've seen that across Latin America. Ecuador seems to have a similar project here called UPCs, community policing, where they implant these small precincts within the favelas and the barrios, and they try and win the hearts and minds and weaken the gang's grip on those communities. But on Saturday, I visited some of those projects here in Guayaquil, and they were fortified with sandbags, metal barricades. They were constantly coming under attack by armed gang members. Oh, entrar aquí también. So we're just moving through this police station. It's been completely trashed by the by the criminals when they came in here on just a few days ago. There were gunshot holes in the wall downstairs, sandbags, there's trash all over the floor, cards, pillows, plates, um, toothpaste. And the policemen I met were completely and utterly under siege from the local gang, who, by the way, I think are the same gang who were responsible for storming the television station. So. Yeah, but it's a huge question, and, and, and I don't think progressive politicians have the answer, and they need to find one sharpish. Tom, how big a player is Ecuador now in the international illegal drug trade? It's become an absolutely massive part of this puzzle. I remember the first time I came to Ecuador to report was in 2018, just at the start of this process at which the murder rate was starting to rise, and these foreign drug trafficking organisations were moving in. And I remember I drove up to um, northern Ecuador to report on Venezuelan migrants who were coming into the country. And on my way back, I was pulled over by the army. My bag was taken out, put on the ground, and they absolutely pulled apart my bag. And I remember they found my Brazilian flip-flops and thought this was a rather strange thing for someone to have in the Andes and spent about 10 minutes bending them, probing them, cut a little bit off one of them, looking for cocaine. And it was a little hint, I think, that that region, which is a very crucial part of the drug trade and drug smuggling down towards where I am now, was starting to get out of control. And over the last five, six, seven years, there has been an absolute explosion in the amount of drugs being shipped through here and in the violence. A security expert I spoke to last week said that the number one transatlantic cocaine trafficking route is now Guayaquil to Antwerp. And you were also seeing drugs Peruvian and Colombian, particularly cocaine, being shipped through to other ports in France, Lisbon, Italy, Portsmouth, Gothenburg, everywhere. So the main thing, according to him, that is driving the drug war here is the unending demand for cocaine in Europe. Given that, given that the source of Ecuador's problems lies in people in Europe buying cocaine and actually outstripping US demand even in that respect, do the countries here not have responsibility to help Ecuador tackle its violence? I think the police I've been with over the last few days would say absolutely yes. Yeah, when I was touring around this favela on Saturday with the police, he made a point of sending a message also to European drug users. He seemed to think we're just oblivious to the pain and suffering and bloodshed that they were causing. It's hard to describe just how horrific the violence has become here. You know, you hear stories and see things that I have really only seen whilst reporting in some of the worst parts of Mexico. Beheadings, bodies being hung from bridges, people being quartered, uh, disappeared on a huge scale. It's absolutely appalling. And the police officer said, you know, I think we just we need Europeans to understand that this is this is happening here. So, yeah, absolutely. I think Europe and Europeans have a responsibility to do something to help. And in the meantime, knowing what we do about Colombia and Mexico, How do you think the next few years might play out in Ecuador? 
I think we can almost certainly assume that things are going to get even worse before they get better. I mean, there are no quick, easy solutions to a problem of this scale. The last few years have been appalling. I think many Ecuadorians are just absolutely just just astonished that this has happened in such a short space of time. You know, for now, the streets here in Guayaquil are, there are more people out. There's some some sense of normality, but there's still troops on the streets. I think at some point over the next few days, there will, you know, things will start to return more and more to normal, but the fundamental problems will not go away. The president has said he no longer considers these groups, what they call GDOs here, which is organized groups of delinquents. They are now considered terrorists. And you hear military figures in the newspapers and on television here saying, well, look, these guys are terrorists. If they fight back, they die. So for now, they've gone to ground, but who knows, frankly, what over the coming days, weeks and months they are going to do and how they will respond to this big crackdown on the streets and in the prisons, which they once controlled and presumably very much want to continue controlling. Tom, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was The Guardian's Latin America correspondent, Tom Phillips. Do read his coverage of this story, including a report on life and death in Ecuador's most murderous city, or at theguardian.com. To catch up with the latest in North America, specifically to understand Trump's steamroller win at the Iowa caucus and what lies ahead at the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday, do tune in to our sister podcast, Politics Weekly America, where Jonathan Friedland is reporting on the ground in the US. Find it wherever you listen to this. That's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal. This episode is produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design is by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Huma Khalili. See you again on Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.